the galaxy burns. The heretic falls. And the emperor protects. Welcome, Imperial citizens, to The Emperor Protects. My name is Doug with 2 Plus Stuff, and along with me, my co-host, Dan of uh, Cubic Shenanigans. How are you doing today? Doing great, my friend. Yeah, and today we are tackling uh, a mammoth of a book, like eating an elephant. <laughs> it is <Yeah. laughs> Fear to Tread by James Swallow. This is um, an integral book, I would say, certainly to the Blood Angels. Whether you play 40K or 30K, you're going to want to read this. Um, because it's all the it's all the prehistory of 40k, and it's all the current news of 30k, <laughs> basically. Yes, yes. And um, it basically stars the Blood Angels and how they were drawn into the Horus Heresy. Mm. Um, before we get too far into it, uh, we had some listener comments. They just wanted to say that they love the show. I was excited when it drops, and. Uh, some requests for uh, Night Lords and Death Guard uh, as upcoming books. And if someone wants to recommend a Loyalist Legion, that way we can kind of ping pong back and forth. That'd be kind of cool. That'd be nice. Yes. Um, so what is we doing today? Let's see. I think, honestly, dude, we just got to dive right in. <laughs> yeah. Is there I any mean, preface you want to give before we jump just, in here? Just a couple of things. First yeah. of all. You know, this book really is about Horace and his traitor allies setting a plan in motion. And it is one of those convoluted, crazy, you know, 15 steps before you get to the end kind of thing. Yes. Uh, that they set. And and really, Horace is trying to do one or two things. He's either trying to turn or destroy the Blood Angels and turn or destroy Sanguinius. Yes. We're not really sure early in the story what's going to happen, but that's his goal. And. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the thing is, since the earliest days of the Crusades, Sanguinius has been just the model Primarch, right? And he was really probably among the closest and most loyal of Horace's brothers. They were really good friends. But the problem is, this is a story of another brother betrayed. Yes. In a most horrific way. Mm -hmm. And really, to your point, it's, it's an origin of the legacy that will curse the Ninth Legion for 10,000 years. Yes, yeah. Right? And going strong, yes. Yeah, right? <laughs> and, and as with Scars, we talked about how the character list is just vast. So what we're mm -hmm. going to do is we're going to try to filter down yes. the names to the essential people. And as you listen or read the book yourself, you'll see all these names pop up and you go, oh gosh, they didn't talk about them. No, mm -hmm. because if we did that, we would be here for three hours, right? Yes. Um, and a lot of it, you get lost in all those names. So uh, that's really my kind of preface to, yeah. to the story. Um, one thing I wanted to throw up top here is that it's easy for people who are already fans of Warhammer to feel like it's stuff that you really can't explain to a new person. And this book is wonderful because, for example... This mm. is when the Imperium or Space Marines in general are introduced to demons. Like they don't have a context for any of the things that are happening. And they have been so cowed by the uh, Edict of Nikea that they're not even willing to talk about it. And that's to everybody's detriment. Like oh, everybody. And so sometimes, like, uh, I did the same thing for Dominion by Darius Hanks for Age of Sigmar. Yes. We sometimes okay. lose sight of like, oh yeah, this is of course how you fight orcs. But then when you take the perspective of someone mm. discovering it for the first time 
it's very exciting and it's it's helpful for new folks so I'll well, try that and, out there. you know that's a that is such an excellent point doug because we have this meta knowledge mm-hmm. you know as people who follow the heresy regularly and we know about all these things and it, it's so great that you point out that a lot of people don't and we're gonna mm-hmm. you know we try to talk to people who don't know the story in the heresy as well as those who do. So um, that's a, gr- a great point yeah. to bring up. Yeah. And so I think that's why this book has a lot of value, even just not mm-hmm. for, for Blood Angels players yes. per se. So, yeah. all right, well, let's jump into so, it. Yeah, our story really here begins with, as a lot of these do, with a flashback, a journey into yes. the past. Lots and, of those in this. <laughs> yes, uh, there's a joint operation going on between the Luna Wolves and the Blood Angels. Now, the fact that we've said Luna Wolves should tell you the time frame for this. Mm-hmm. This is very early on in the Crusade. And there's a planet called Melchior, and it kind of marks the successful end of a campaign to exterminate the Nephilim, who are a Xenos race mm-hmm. that basically have enslaved the entire native human population. And do you want to talk a little bit about how they do this? My understanding is like it's a it, there's a creature element, but it's like a partial psychic too. Mm. Like, and they can incorporate different aspects of the hosts' societies into their. Mm-hmm. I don't know. They're, they're they just they're a parasitic intelligence. Yes, that's a great. <laughs> I, I guess <laughs> that's a great way to do it. Yeah, and uh, in the battle's aftermath, when they finally finish the Nephilim off, Sanguinius gets called away. Um, he's He's standing there talking to Horus by first Captain Ralderon. And Ralderon is a very important character in the heresy. Yes. And afterwards in in 40K and the heresy. Um, and it's interesting that there are two characters that just real quickly to talk about their command style. So first Captain Ralderon was chosen as the first captain by Sanguinius because he has a very flexible command style you know yes. he's very reactive and adaptable to adapt yeah. to situations right and then we have Ascalon, obviously of the of the primarch so though we have those two things but ralderon we get back to him he comes up to the primarch and kind of very quietly says one of your one of your brothers has been lost and we use the word lost right mm-hmm. and so sanguinius goes with Ralderon to this deserted cathedral-like building. And uh, there's brother Alatros, who's a space marine. He's succumbed to a madness called the Red Thirst. Now, for those familiar with the Bullet Angels, they know that there are two things here. We have the Red Thirst, mm-hmm. and we also have the Black Rage, which is the next level of this yes. madness. And it basically just turns them into mindless feral beasts. They're just bloodthirsty killers when they when they succumb to this. Mm-hmm. And Alatros is so far gone, he actually attacks the Primarch. And, of course, Sanguinius kind of just... It bats him away. His finger, he breaks <laughs> yeah. his finger. So the thing, though, is, is that Horus came in. He kind of followed. And somehow he got past the Sanguinary Guard, eh? Don't understand that, but it doesn't matter. Um, he pretty much demands that it, he kind of try to ask Snice, but he demands really yeah. that Sanguinius explain what just happened. Why did you kill one of your own Marines? Yep. And so this is where Sanguinius confesses to Horus and he, very, very few people 
in this story know that there's a flood, a flood, a flaw <laughs> in the Blood Angel's genetic makeup. Yes. And, you know, he says that it's surfaced occasionally, but um, now it seems to be more frequent. And so when I listen, you know, I'm reading this, I'm going, okay, wait a minute. Can you say Thousand Sons? Like, yeah, you knew there was a problem and you tried to suppress it. Yeah. Yeah. That's it, it, exactly what Magnus did with his guys, yep. you know, mutating. It's exactly what the Vilka Fenrika, also known as the Space Wolves, mm -hmm. tried to do with the 13th Company and the Wolfen. Yep. Now, that problem wasn't, it wasn't as problematic for them because they kind of accepted the Wolfen, you know, into their ranks. But it was still a genetic flaw that other people wouldn't have understood. Absolutely. Right? And so I just find it interesting that this omnipotent emperor who created these perfect beings created at least three legions that have these massive genetic flaws. I just Well, he's not omnipotent. He's just really smart, I suppose. He's really smart, true. Um, but, yeah, no, they, I mean, there were some hiccups. But then it's like, why does he have wings, Sanguinius? You know, it's like that kind of stuff of, like, <laughs> uh, he won the that? mutation um, raffle, I guess. <laughs> right. Better than a tentacle coming out of his butt, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you got to have somebody who can fly around like like the demons can, you know. Yeah, I they suppose. The demons uh, that don't I, exist, says the emperor. <laughs> so uh, he, you know, tells Horus that he's tried to find a cure. He's failed. And Horus, at this point, he and Sanguinius are still very close. And mm -hmm. he says, look, I am not going to tell anybody. I'm not even going to tell our father about this. And he also says that if there's anything I can do to help you find a cure, I will do it. Yes. Um, and then after the Primarchs have gone, Ralderon summons in an apothecary named Meros and now Meros is incredibly important to the story so listeners remember the name Meros yes very important guy so he takes out um Alatros's gene steed but instead of returning it to the legion's you know supply or whatever Ralderon takes the capsule and just says thank you very much uh forget everything that you've seen yes <laughs> Yeah, and this is yeah. when um, it starts with Maros being like a junior officer. Like he's like a combat yeah. medic, essentially. Yes. <laughs> and then right. uh, we get to see him evolve over time, too. It's kind of fun. Which is really nice character development. Yep, mm -hmm. absolutely. And he plays such a critical role in the story. So now we're going to flash to the present day. Mm -hmm. uh, the Blood Angels are finishing a campaign where they've been uh, kind of working with sort of the Alpha Legion, but they're trying to destroy some orc forces. Yes. And uh, there is a librarian named Kano, and he is really an ex-librarian because Sanguinius complied with the Edict of Nikea. And mm -hmm. he, um, but unlike Dorn, he didn't lock his librarians away. Yeah. Right. It was he was a reasonable person. He was like, "Okay, we're gonna split you out amongst the different units. Don't talk to each other. Everyone, yes. turn in your psychic hoods." <laughs> yes, right. Yep, deposit them on the table. And so uh, he, Captain uh, Urcano, leads an assault on the final orc warship to disable it. Okay, and they're on the bridge of this orc ship, and an orc psyker um, 
really strongly attacks him. And of course, he's trying not to use his psychic powers to defend himself. You know, he's trying to be a regular Astartes. Fortunately, some other blood angels arrive and kill this thing. Uh, and there's a guy named um, Anellis who's he's kind of like a babysitter, you know, <laughs> or the librarians. He's, he's the proto chaplain. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, you didn't use your powers, did you? You better not have. And he's just so annoying to me in the story. He I is. understand why he's there, but it's just like, okay, he's an adult. He can deal with this, right? So, um, well, he's, he, you know, we can flash past him otherwise, but he is important yeah. because he is constantly reaffirming the Council of Nikea to a group yes. of space marines that desperately need to be able to be aware of what's going on psychically around them. So Absolutely. he's important because, like, it's not that he's evil. It's just that because he's there, everything went wrong. <laughs> okay, he's a huge part of it, right? Yeah. And um, so Kano and Anellis get in this argument. Ralderon comes up and says, "Hey, whoa!" Um, he breaks it up. But the I think one of the other important things about this is that Kano is repeatedly tempted to revert to his true nature mm -hmm. throughout this story. He again and again and again, and he he resists the temptation, which you know, speaks to his, his strong character. Yes. So also, and very important to the story, at this time, there's a small delegation of war bearers that arrive. And they're led by a guy named Apostle. He's the Apostle Tannis Creed. That's his title as Apostle. And they came because they said they have new orders for Sanguinius from Horus, who's the war master, right? Mm -hmm. And the Sanguinius is like, well, why are you here? This is kind of bizarre. Like, why didn't, you know, they just use an astropath to send the message yeah, or send something. send a text. Don't call me. Yeah, right. Exactly, <laughs> right? And so what you find out is that the reason for this is made very clear when a word bearer's astropath named Saze, who's going to be important in the story as well, she kind of acts as a conduit between Sanguinius and Horus. And this image of Horus comes up that is just like crystal clear, right? It's just, it's like he's in the same room with Sanguinius. Mm -hmm. And so they can talk to each other as though they're both sitting there together. Yes. Uh, and Horus tells Sanguinius that the Nephilim have survived. They didn't kill all of them off. At least that's what he tells them. Mm -hmm. And that there is a group of stars called the Cygnus Cluster, and the Blend Angels need to go there to destroy the Nephilim, which they want to do, because obviously they have this grudge against them from their earlier yes. confrontations with them. And Sanguinius is like, well, okay, we, we could do that, and we'd be happy to do that, but it just seemed like a campaign that was more suited to a more you know, like world eaters or somebody like that. Oh yeah. They should be scoured, not, not right. hunted. <laughs> right. And Horace is like, he kind of feels that hesitation. She's like, look, I'll tell you what. I also know that the Nephilim have a technology that can counteract the red thirst. And all of a sudden, ka-ching, you mm -hmm. know, Sanquidius is like, oh yeah, we'll do that now. Uh, really interesting. Yeah. But, the other thing that Sanguinius does is he kind of is wondering, how the heck are you communicating with me? Like, I was, was going to chime in and say that. Yeah, this is the first allowance of the unknown of like, oh, this is the most secure form of communication. You're like, uh, I kind of bent a woman in half. 
<laughs> I don't like that. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. Poor Sazi, man. I felt for her in this whole story. Uh, so that's kind of where we are. So that is the impetus to get them to move towards Cygnus. Yes, which is really yeah. where the bulk of the book takes place. Yes, agreed. Uh, now there's another thing that it's very critical we talk about. is that It seems like an insignificant encounter, mm-hmm. but it's very central to the story. So Erebus, and we all know who that guy is, the creep Erebus, he <laughs> ends up visiting the apothecarium of Fabius Bile, I call him the witch doctor. And if you recall, Fabius Bile is the chief uh, apothecarian for the emperor's children. Well, he notices as he's in this apothecarium that there are preserved bodies of both blood angels and emperor's children. Yep. That it turns out were the ones who were killed during the battle on murder. And if listeners you recall, very early in our coverage of the heresy, uh, there was a planet where a bunch of space marines were literally impaled on these spikes, you know, mm-hmm. and it just was a horrific thing. But it was a battle in which both the Blood Angels and the Emperor's children had participated. So he's kind of looking at him like, what's going on here, right? And they have this conversation, but the essential thing is that Erebus is given a small parting gift by his friend Fabius Bile, which is some gene seed material from the Blood Angel. Now, we know from what we talked about earlier that they have this flaw. So this is gene seed that was taken right out of the body. Mm -hmm. It is flawed gene seed. It is red thirst gene seed. Yes. Um, and Erebus, of course, has that evil Erebus smile as he <laughs> leaves the room because he's got plans. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yes. So that, that takes place. and It is kind of a footnote. They did kind of feel awkward, but it comes to fruition. <laughs> yes. Yeah, which is why we're just going to mention it briefly. Anyway, um, so now we get the entire Blood Angels Legion, like everybody has come together. There's like mm-hmm. 300 companies of freaking Blood Angels, right? It just... <laughs> Tens of thousands of these Marines. And also there's a small group of Space Wolves who showed yes. up. So we have word bearers and we have some Space Wolves. And the question really at that point is, Space Wolves, like, what are you doing here? Right. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that the only thing they've said at this point is, we have come on the orders of Malkador. That, that's really it. It didn't say yep. much more. And nope. Sequinius is like, cool, that's fine, you know. I'm cool with my brother. Yeah, um, he probably just thinks it's like an inspection or like oversight or something dumb. Yeah, so it's good, right? Um, So they transition into the warp. And Kano and Sanguinius, because we know Sanguinius is very psychic as well. He more, he's the, um, you know, prescience vision kind of a psyker. Mm -hmm. Um, But they both get these weird visions of falling into this like bottomless pit and they also see this screaming red angel and we don't know what that means yet but we're starting to get an idea that there's something there dark portents (laughs) yeah and red angel is the term that they use so they arrive in the cygnus cygnus cluster and they find that there's nobody there Uh, Mm -hmm. there's no life that they can discover, at least at first. So they send out forces to investigate wreckage of several ships that were trying to get out of the system, obviously. Mm-hmm. And they 
find the bodies of lots and lots of humans. But there was one very weird thing about them. What was that, my friend? Uh, they don't got no bones. Um, they ha- it was a very cool scene. I loved it where they brought a bunch of apothecarians in. They're like, you got 10 minutes to inspect them. You know, the highest level security hazards because we don't know what killed them. And they're like doing all their tools and widgets. And it just seems like something, their bones just disappeared. <laughs> they turned to mush. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Just so bizarre. And you have no idea. One of the things I love about this part of the story, Doug, is like, you have no idea mm-hmm. why that happened, and you're not going to find out for a while either. But yeah, but it's a part of that discovering with them, right? They're like, "Yes, well, why is a ship going that direction? It doesn't even have warp travel." And the whole point is like, it's humans. They were scared. They were just running into the void because it was better than what was ever yes. here. <laughs> like, <Yeah>. oh man. <laughs> um, so go ahead. Oh, so the fleet then passes the outermost planet. It's called Foros. Mm-hmm. And they look at it. It's just like a black cinder. There's yes. nothing there. But all of a sudden, these huge cracks start appearing on the, the surface of the planet. Mm-hmm. And it forms this huge eight-pointed star. And, of course, the Blood Angels have no idea what the significance of that is. Absolutely. Yes. Which... They- you kind of laugh, don't you, in the story when you think about it for a second? Mm-hmm. Like everybody, everybody listening and reading the book knows what it is. It is literally a planet-sized warning sign, <laughs> and they have no idea. And everybody else, we're all sitting there like, "Oh yeah, we know what." The-. It's just so funny. Um, but you know, they try to wash it away of like, "Oh, it's just weird tectonic activity." But then, like, the star follows them like an eyeball looking at yes. the ship. So it's like it's, it's oh, weird. Yeah. <laughs> and the other thing is this symbol kind of forms on the surface more and more of the fleet's human crews start committing suicide they're just yes. starting to get mad right um and in addition to this madness that's spreading among the human crews there's this dark veil that kind of falls across the sky and it yep. you know it's just there this blackness yes uh, and they don't know what it is. And at this point, that's um, they are completely isolated. So it's a whole legion of blood angels, a couple of space wolves, and like two or three word bearers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. All right. So at this point, we have another flashback. Mm-hmm. And it's to Olinor. And we see Horus kind of, it's after the big triumph, big parade, big party. And Horace just wants to be alone. He's yep. kind of brooding and you know, over the fact that he's got this awesome responsibility that he really wasn't expecting. Mm-hmm. Hardly anybody was really expecting it. And Sanguinius finds him, and they're still very close as brothers. And Horace expresses his opinion that Sanguinius should have gotten this. Yep was more deserving and i think most of us would agree that's true (laughs) (laughs) i mean everyone's got problems (laughs) but it's just interesting um and you have a hard time with what i just said because you're a big you know heresy uh horus uh sons of horus fan so you're like yeah i mean (laughs) he had the best resume but i think gilliman probably would have been the right choice i I hate to admit it (laughs) you're probably yeah so um 
But Sanguinius tries to comfort him, just say, hey, you know what? Um, he is the most deserving. Everybody will accept that. And um, Horace asks Sanguinius, because he knows he has that gift, did you see anything? And he's like, no, I had no idea this was coming. And Horace was like, I didn't either. <laughs> yeah, that's not good. You should. That's a big surprise. <laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, I, I have a little bit of trouble that, like the thing with um, – you know, the Nephilim and Horus and Sanguinius there and their closeness and their closeness here after Ulanor. I think it's just, this is my opinion, of course, that James Swallow is just trying to show us how devastating mm-hmm. this whole story and how tragic it is because of the relationship they had and the closest they had um, and how really they were each other's best friends in a lot of ways. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. So that makes it even more difficult for Sanguinius as things happen. Anyway, um, we get into the Cygnus cluster and one ship is sent back to kind of investigate this darkness, right? Yep. Well, as it gets close, these weird entities, that's all we're going to call them for now, uh, kind of like reach out from this cloud and just destroy the ship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, they hit the bo- the boundary of the trap, and they got smacked out of the sky for it. <laughs> oh, man, just horrible. Um, and the other thing that's going on is there is a planet called Holst, which is the next closest in, mm-hmm. and a squad of Blunt Angels from the Ninth Company, which includes Apothecary Maros. We talked about him before. Yep. They take a Stormbird down to the surface. And they're accompanied by Kano, the librarian, and the word bearers are all there as well. There's Creed, there's his uh, kind of second-in-command, Harux, and then there are two other word bearers. And on the way down to the surface, the Stormbird's pilot, the human pilot, goes nuts. Mm-hmm. And the ship crashes. Thank, thanks to Maros, it's an emergency landing, but nobody's hurt. Yes. He's the one who actually grabs the controls, which was was kind of interesting um, in the story. So uh, once they get down there, they realize that they're kind of stranded because the fleet doesn't really know what's yeah. going on with them. And Yeah, I mean, they were blind on the planet side when they were in space. So now that they're here, they're just mm-hmm. kind of stuck. <laughs> and here's here's the other thing. What did they discover on the surface? <laughs> the humans that they found who were dead of course uh they were missing their bones as well so you know i mean at least it seems like they're following a trail (laughs) this is like thousands of people it's not just like this little group it's thousands and thousands of people who have their their bodies are boneless Mm -hmm. and you're going okay wait a minute something wrong here (laughs) Something silly's uh, happening. Yeah, something chaos is happening. Whatever the chaos is, we don't even know what that is. So um, they are um, super on alert now based on okay. what they've seen. But it doesn't matter because no. <laughs> this city literally starts attacking them. Like the the buildings and mm-hmm. the concrete in the walkways and glass in the buildings it's like this one 
building like swallows a blood angel and another word bearer is like this glass tower just shatters and the glass just impales him. And Mm -hmm. these constructs are made from just random debris. There's no just wires and road signs and rebar and and everything. And the squad seems absolutely doomed when you think about the scale of that. But now there's a captain a Blood Angel's captain named Amit, and he arrives in a gunship. They retreat into orbit. He gets them off, and now the planet is just like really angry. Yes. So, like mountain-sized pieces of rock are being thrown at the Blood Angel's fleet. Yeah, and it's it coughing up its own crust. <laughs> right. Yeah, and it just destroys the whole ship. Boom! You know, like a giant meteor hitting a ship. Um, and Sanguinius is like, okay, we're, we're done with this foolishness. And basically the whole fleet just combines every one of their weapons just blows this planet. Mm-hmm. Up, right. Yep. But here, here to me is the amazing thing. No one has really asked yet where the Nephilim are. <laughs> yeah. There's been some discussion at this point of like, well, we know that they use psychological warfare to explain all these weird things, but like, right. There's no actual evidence of them. Nothing's happened to make them think that there's even an alien here. <laughs> it's no. just, it's awesome. <laughs> because they know that the humans they found are not like the humans that the Nephilim, you know, controlled. Yes, that's important to know. Yeah, they didn't, they didn't remove so bones. Different. So different. Um, okay, now here we go. This, this is where we start down the, the crazy path. Mm-hmm. Is so Creed, the word bearer, returns to his ship and starts this just hideous ritual. So the Astropath Saze that we talked about before is -hmm. basically forced to kill herself because she wants to make one last, or Creed and his guys want her to make one last communion between Horus and Cygnus, you know, the system here. Yep. And Horus just dresses down Creed like, you were so arrogant. You have no idea what is going on here. I didn't do this to talk to you. <laughs> yeah, basically, yeah, he rang and was like, stop. I'm waiting for a more important phone call. <laughs> there you go, yeah. It, it turns out that he is ready to communicate with a greater demon of corn, a bloodthirster. And yes. this bloodthirster will, again, here's an important name, feature prominently in Blood Angel's lore um, mm-hmm. into the future. His name is Kabanda. Yes. And so Horus convinces Kabanda to kill Sanguinius. Now, this is the weird part to mm-hmm. me when I first read this. So Horus wants him to kill Sanguinius. Yes. But Erebus, in his all his machinations that he does, the plan was to turn Sanguinius, not yes. kill him. Mm-hmm. Right. But then you get this really interesting thing where Horus is afraid. He actually fears the fact that Sanguinius, if he's just turned, he might actually become the war master. Oh, yeah, man. Because then he's just one more person on the path to glory. Right. Trying to, like, <laughs> work your way to the top. He's a chaos lord. Now yeah, he has competition. It just shows you how far Horus has fallen. But, right, that he is oh, yeah. so he, he's so driven now. I mean, he is the war master. He is the guy. No competition, no nothing. Um, but he still here's the other thing, he still wants the Legion. He wants yes. the Blood Angels oh, yeah. turn. 
He just doesn't want their father to come along for the ride. Well, what's interesting to me is that he didn't care about Mortarian, um, you know, Angeron, all the other Primarchs. It's Sanguinius. He's he, the one who had a real shot to usurp me. I was like, oh, that's interesting. It, it is. Yeah, that's true. That is true. Yep. Yep. So uh, that happens. Pretty A pretty neat description of all this going on. Mm-hmm. I thought the whole scene was amazing. Uh, so the Blood Angels fleet gets to another planet in the Cygnus system. Just to keep hopping closer and closer to the yeah. sun. It's a planet called Skultrum. And so the survivors of the Ninth Company, including Maros, uh, are kind of distributed uh, among a larger company, kind of as advisors. And they, they take, um, they go down to the planet because there's a, a Cygnusi ship that's crashed on the planet. Mm-hmm. And they want to see if there are any survivors. So they discover survivors hiding out in a cargo department or compartment of this ship. Mm-hmm. And there's a woman named Niobe. Yes. And she is kind of the de facto leader of the group. Uh, and they're going to try to evacuate them now because they did find them actual humans with bones. Right? Yeah, yeah. Every one of those has a story to tell, but you don't know if it's... are they contaminated? <laughs> like right. what? You don't know. Yeah. Um, so as they're trying to evacuate, then they are attacked by this horde of flies. I wonder what that would be. And what we know are Slaneshi demonettes, the, mm-hmm. the crab, the crab claw, claw beauties, you know, that are part of Slaanesh's menagerie. Yes. <laughs> and Maros kind of asked the questions. He's the guy who does this. He says, so why is it that the demons are attacking us, but they never attacked you? Like, why did they mm-hmm. never find you in that cargo compartment? Because all the other humans around here are dead. Yep. You guys survived. There's something going on. Right? So uh, they get them back, and then the survivors tell the story of a man named Bruja, who we get this very, very quick and uh, yeah, exposure kind of, to. Kind of a yada yada. <laughs> yeah. Um, earlier on, and you're like, what was that about? Um, but he overthrew the Signusi government. You could tell by the wording when he was introduced that there was something chaosy, slaneshi going on. But um, he basically paved the way for this army of demons to mm-hmm. essentially eradicate all human life in the system. He was kind of the herald of the of chaos in the yes. in the Cygnus group. So he would be like a grand ritualist. He came in, took over the planet's mm-hmm. government, rose to prominence, and then kind of just used the whole system as a ritual, yeah. Yep. And the thing here is the Blood Angels are confused because they still believe the attack the attacks, as you pointed out earlier, are psychological warfare by the Nephilim. Mm-hmm. And they're like, no somebody wants to use the word, the D word, the demon word. Mm-hmm. No, that's the, and the, it, here's another person who's important. It's captain Emmett who rescued the, uh, the Marines on the, the previous planet they were on. Yep. Um, and he's like the only one who gives these stories credibility where they're talking about demons. Um, and <laughs> so there's something going on. And, and again, it was kind of, because we have that meta knowledge, Doug, mm-hmm. you're like just going, dudes, what is wrong with you? 
like you just keep stepping further and further yes. into the noose. Yeah. And you just don't want to admit that there's something really wrong here. Well, and it starts to be interesting which which of the characters and captains like mm-hmm. they are open to new ideas and which ones are very closed. So like yes. Amit is great because he's like I don't care what we call it. I don't you know, they call it a demon, we can call it whatever we want. How do you kill it? Right? He's a very practical person like. <laughs> and then there's a bunch of other captains who scoff and because they think the word demon is ridiculous that nothing these people have to say matters. And it's like, that's not true. That's also the wrong direction. <laughs> yes. Um, and we also find out that before we go to the next point, part of this is that Kano, that like former librarian, he's been kind of moving around the fleet, talking to the other former librarians. Yes. Very much and, against the rules. Yeah. And he discovers that they've all had the same dream of this red angel, whatever that is. And so there's, as though we didn't figure it out already, there's something terribly bad about this red angel thing. That's mm-hmm. cool. So we've we've gone through the pregame here with these other planets. Yes, and that this is a that was them discovering chaos basically, and then uh, then we get to the core, which is nice of Cygnus Prime. Yes. Yep. Uh, it's the capital planet mm-hmm. of the system. Um, and as they approach this thing, this psychic shriek just booms, blasts out from Cygnus Prime, and it causes this madness and despair among the human crews where it's just really widespread. Before, it was just a few here and there were killing themselves. Yeah. And uh, now it's just everywhere. All the humans are doing this. And the other thing that happens is this greater demon of Slanesh called Kairos materializes in the same room as Sanguinius. Yes. And he's like, hello, Sanguinius. I am the master of Cygnus. It's it's like, what? Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, right at that moment, a chaos fleet comes out of an asteroid belt and starts to attack the blood angels. I mean, it's starting to pick up now. We got frenetic action here. Yeah. Uh, and this is the moment, because up until this point, the Blood Angels still did not understand that the word bears were traitors. They didn't know this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're just weird. <laughs> yeah, they're just weird guys. Uh, but Tannis Creed actually abandons the Blood Angels. He runs. Mm-hmm. Um, and he allows, because he could have shot this vessel out of the sky, basically, he allows this chaos vessel to ram the Sanguinius' flagship, the Red Tear. Yes. So what has happened really is this thing has been used as a giant boarding torpedo mm-hmm. and a small group of Marines, including Mero Sincano, are facing off against this horde of demons that have emerged from this ship into the red tier. Um, and they're really struggling. And all of a sudden, these space wolves, who we haven't really heard much about until, <laughs> other than the original when they arrived, mm-hmm. He and his space wolves just come in. They use a bomb to blast the ship away. Yes. <laughs> Demons are sucked out into the space. They don't mess so around. Cool. <laughs> They're like, we're not going to screw around, man. We're just going to do this. And I thought it was so cool because they have a really small kind of part to play in the book. But it's still neat to yes. see space wolves doing space wolf stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, Kano's very badly wounded during this. Uh, but... 
the Blood Angels defend themselves and the Blood Angels fleet defends itself very effectively. Mm -hmm. But now we have a very important person who succumbs to this madness. I know. That's sad. Oh, my gosh. And she was such a neat character. It's the shipmistress of the Red Tier. So the captain of the Red Tier, she goes nuts. And she basically murders the entire bridge crew. Yes. Just guns them all down. And it was such a great scene, uh, listeners, because, like, they do it from her perspective. So she sees all the other crew members going crazy and, like, trying to kill her. But then we realize it's just her going insane, killing everybody. Oh, so cool. (laughs) It was a great scene. Um, And then what she does, she sabotages the ship Mm -hmm. and basically sends it into a dive towards the planet. Yes. And th- she destroys every possible way that that can be reversed. So uh, Sanguinius kind of intervenes and the ship makes a crash landing, but it's relatively intact. Mm-hmm. Um, and in orbit, the rest of the fleet has driven the chaos flotilla back into the asteroid belt uh, the Blood Angels, of course, being space marines, they convert their flagship, their broken flagship, into a fortress. Yes, absolutely. And the majority of the rest of the Legion, we talked about those 300 companies, shuttle down to the surface because they want to attack whatever the source of this mm-hmm. madness is that's going on in the planet. Um, so uh, they're, they're kind of being, just to give you a break here, uh, they've kind of been directed. <laughs> to on on exactly where to go so like again all of this is just a very obvious trap but like they're being funneled not just to cygnus prime but to a very specific like citadel um that's the one that the demon oh my gosh uh, kairos had talked about like hey come find me here and it's just like so it's so transparent (laughs) it's like it's a trap this okay. is why the good guys die. <laughs> right. Yeah. That is oh, craziness. Um, so anyway, Maros, because uh, Sanguinius has kind of gathered his most trusted advisors, and Maros and uh, Amit are among them. Mm-hmm. And so Maros tells uh, Sanguinius that Creed and his people have left so there's something not right with them. They are yeah. they are involved in this somehow. And then Amit, to your point where he just kind of says what needs to be said, he is the one who suggests that this entire thing has been a trap yep. set for them by Horus. And Sanguinius just goes nuts and he just slams him um, against the wall kind of thing. And all of a sudden, Red Knife, who's the space wolf, he's there. He's like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Let me tell you why we're here. And and I just thought this was hilarious, man. It's like too little too late, right? Right, yeah. He waited all this time since they've gotten there to finally tell Sanguinius that they were sent by Malkador to watch for signs of corruption. He says that Magnus has already betrayed the Emperor by betraying the Edict. And all of a sudden, some of the pieces and parts are falling in place. But mm-hmm. it's just like, guys... Why didn't you say that like five chapters ago? It would have been really helpful. Because <laughs> at this point, all they know is that Magnus broke the rules, which means that space marines are corruptible. But Horus, I mean, to their to the character's knowledge, I don't know about actual timeline, but um, they don't know anything about the Istvan 
massacre. So they're just like, oh, no. what do you mean Magnus is bad guy now? <laughs> right. Yep. It, although, it, it, to your point, you know, Magnus is the bad guy. They finally accept the fact that it's not the Nephilim. <laughs> yes. Finally. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> they still don't know who the enemy is, but they know it's not the Nephilim. And they prepare to attack the enemy stronghold. It's called the Cathedral of the Mark. And uh, on their way to try to, you know, take down the enemy, they meet hordes and hordes of demons. So it's pretty obvious what's going on now, mm-hmm. right in front of the temple. Uh, and what? Where? Wait a minute. What? What were all those bones? What happened? To all those bones from those people, Doug? Oh well, they were used in the building of a cathedral known as the Cathedral of the Mark, a colossal edifice to these demons, okay. built of the bones of the entire system. <laughs> it's pretty. It's like a black uh, metal album cover. It sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, so, as this fight's going on, Cabanda, who, who was summoned, as it were. Uh, he joins the fight against the Marines, and he duels Sanguinius. Now, it's cool that Sanguinius actually got the upper hand, and mm-hmm. you know he's got this big flaming blade. Ooh, she runs Cabanda through with it. But the Bloodthirster, and more than once, he and Kairos say to the Marines and Sanguinius, we will only ever tell you the truth. They do say that. You know, yep. and he tells Sanguinius that Horus has betrayed him. Mm-hmm. And Sanguinius knows this is true, but it's such, oh my gosh, he's just such in despair. And even though it's just a couple few moments, mm-hmm. you could tell the massive effect that this has on Sanguinius knowing this. And of course, Cabanda takes advantage of it. He kind of wraps his whip around Sanguinius's legs and pulls and breaks his legs. Um, and he unleashes this psychic blast um, on, you know, on the thousands of blood angels that are fighting in and around the cathedral. Yep. And the book says he instantly slays 500 Marines. Yes. Bloodthirster rules, please. <laughs> Gosh. I mean, this is five companies of, modern day, you know, Marines, yeah, right? Absolutely. And so of course 500 of his sons die in an instant and the psychic backlash basically sends Sanguinius into this pit of dark unconsciousness. He just collapses. Yep. And you're like, "Oh, this is not good." Yeah, so that's our that's our all is lost moment of uh, the angel going down. Right. Um it, it's, it was it was pretty epic. It was very cool. Now, the um, Ascalon and Raldoran, of course, being who they are, they basically grab Sanguinius's body, mm-hmm. you know, and they teleport it back to the Red Tier. They take it back to the Red Tier, and they order a retreat. But there's something emanating from this cathedral that has basically put the entire legion under the influence of the Red Thirst. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's like a beacon happen. kind of a thing. Oh, just horrible. And um, we know that, just as a side note, Captain Amit, of course, who is a good guy, mm-hmm. but he's mindless with this black, his red rage. 
um, Red Thirst, they run into the Space Wolves who are fighting with them, and they basically tear the Space Wolves apart. Yes. Which was kind of sad. It was, because it's a big old blight stain on their honor, and the Space Wolves <sighs> did not, they don't have the, the Red Thirst, so they're just like watching this whole Legion go insane around them. <laughs> yeah. But they saw nothing because they were all dead. Yep, right? exactly. Um, so now uh, this battle is raging, and, and the Blood Angels, even though they're nuts, they're still fighting the demons. So at least they're not turning on each other yet. Right. Right. So um, Kano and the other former librarians, they all gather around the Primarch, who's unconscious at this point, And they all decide, you know what, Emperor bad idea nikea was just a bad idea (laughs) yes gonna ignore your bad idea and we're gonna try to use our powers to to get into the primarch's mind and bring him out of this despair he's in can i pause here there's a very important thing that i thought of where these space marines stood around and all agreed we are going to break the rules knowing we'll be censured probably killed Mm. For doing this, right? Um, yes. This is a step too far. But the exact same situation presented itself to the sons of Horus when they had to let Horus go to the temple on Davin. That's a great point. You know what I mean? It's like they're not in any... Up. You should bring that point up here. <laughs> oh, I you am. I, I'm doing it now. Here we go. <laughs> okay, there you go. Yeah. But uh, it's just... It, it's fantastic. And so, yeah, we'll get right back into the story here. But I, I loved that scene because it really stuck out as like... Everyone agrees we're all responsible for breaking the rules. It was just Sons yeah. of Horus drew the wrong one. <laughs> yeah, right. They they chose the wrong path, yeah. Yeah, that's a great, great, great point. Yeah, okay. So we're back uh, with Maros, I believe. Right, Maros and the other, uh, other librarians. Because they are librarians now again. They are not yes. just librarians anymore. Um, and he uh, goes into sanguinius's mind but he is ejected from the from the place he goes and the life life force of the other librarians has basically been burnt out protecting him while he's in there Mm -hmm. so he wakes up the other librarians are dead sanguinius is still unconscious and he's just like oh man (laughs) all that for nothing yep yeah he just killed a bunch of people for no reason (laughs) And the Primarch's still not there, right? Yeah, of course. Um, so that being done, we now go back to our apothecary, apothecary Maros. And Maros has finally realized what is special about Niobe and why her people were not found is because she's a pariah. And as most of you know, listeners, a pariah is someone who is anathema to the warp and they emanate this aura of nothingness in terms of the warp yep yeah they're almost like a like a silencer or a dampener mm-hmm. a null mm-hmm. uh, they are often called or if you're near one if you're psychic your powers don't work demons shrivel and they go kind of haywire it's just yeah it's really cool <laughs> it's very cool um and so maros forms a plan with ralderon they want to take her to the temple and use her aura to shield them mm-hmm from this rage as they get closer and closer and they want to end up attacking the demon leaders 
which is Cabanda and Kairos, which it just was kind of funny, even though they have a whole bunch of Marines with them. You're just going, really? <laughs> really? You're going to kill two greater demons of I know. chaos. Oh, hey, yeah. God bless you guys. I'm, Your three I'm squads of space that. Marines, that'll pan out well on a tabletop. So, positive <laughs> attitude. So they take off at a Stormbird, and Furies just swarm this thing. Mm-hmm. And it crashes, and all of a sudden the demons are trying to overwhelm them. And interestingly enough, Anellis, the guy we talked about before who was kind of the librarian uh, babysitter, uh, he and the rest of Maros's squad arrive at a mastodon. Now, yes. I just was thinking about you know how much you love heresy and all the people who play heresy mm-hmm. and even 40k but you can all picture what that model looks like yeah if you don't know what this is go to forge world and, and just look up the mastodon it is a murder bus <laughs> it's just insanely big it's so cool yes and it is bigger than a small dog and <laughs> costs yes. infinitely more <laughs> so they come up in this mastodon and ralderon you know kind of snaps Anellis out of the influence of the Red Thirst, which he's been in, you mm-hmm. know, until they get close to Maros and Niobe. And they take the Mastodon to the cathedral, although Anellis is, because they're attacking, it's not like the demons aren't attacking the Mastodon. And Anellis ends up getting dragged out um, and mobbed by a bunch of demonettes. Yeah. And it's torn apart. So the group gets into the cathedral, and they reach Cabanda, and they reach Kairos. And they also realize and look up to the top, to the center of the uh, cathedral, and Kairos talks to them about this thing called the Rage Fire. Yes. And it's basically a crucible suspended from the ceiling of the cathedral, and it was created interestingly enough, using the gene seed of a blood angel's corpse. But where did they get that, Dan? There's this guy in the heresy named Erebus. (laughs) He comes up a couple times. (laughs) Yeah, so he had that doctor's appointment with Fabius Bile, and Mm -hmm. the doctor said, you know, take one of these and call me in the morning. And so he created this rage fire. It's sort of like a a mix of machinery and arcane Mm -hmm. warp stuff that's fueled by that sample that basically targets the Red Thirst in Blood Angels. Yeah, it's a big satellite for it, basically. Crazy. Um, Now, one of the things I kind of got a chuckle over was while this is all going on, these two demons, Caban and Kairos, are actually arguing with each other and going, it's so demon, it's so chaos, man. <laughs> they would be doing mm-hmm. this while all this stuff is going on because the Bloodthirster has, of course, chosen to follow Horus's lead and kill Sanguinius here, right? right? But Kairos is like, no, 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 that's not the plan. He's more the Erebus guy. And it was just kind of amusing to me how they're going back and forth why all this stuff is going I on. I know. It's very childish and I adore it. Um, one thing, just for context, so it seems like Kairos was behind the cult that took over the system and then Cabanda is responsible for the trap because Kairos yes. is like, I you know, I own Cygnus, he was one of us, but Cabanda is the one who's like, I'm here to kill the angel. <laughs> Which is like, a that's a powerful demon to do that. Yeah, absolutely. 
so that was that was interesting. Anyway, um, so Maris and the others also discover this swirling pit of darkness right underneath the rage fire. It looks a lot like the pit that Sanguinius and Cairo have been having visions of. Just oh this yeah, yeah. Bottomless, dark, swirling pit. So we now switch back, and the two remaining word bearers, Creed and Herox, they join a swarm of demons that have kind of come out of this pit to attack the Blood Angels. But fortunately, and I thought this was so great because these guys are just scumbags. <laughs> this did not go well for them. No. So Valderon basically grabs Horrocks' throat and tears it out. And then Maros takes the saw attachment of his Narthaseum and forces it yep. up under Creed's jaw. Which is the coolest brain kill ever. <laughs> so, it was so cool. That was so, so cool. And you're like, good. These guys yeah. needed to die so badly. Um, Kairos, though... Um, as this is happening, he engages and then just beats the crap out of Raldevan. And he's basically just a ragdoll at this point because he's so beat up. But he kind of throws him to Cabanda and says, here, take care of this one. All of a sudden, our guy appears. Chaboy. And Sanguinius, just, he is there now. Yes. And, in fact, he's been revived by the librarian's uh, efforts and to, this is one of the other scenes in this book that is so freaking awesome, man. Because Sanguinius, you kind of get a feeling he's kind of red raged, but he's really not. He's just infuriated. Yeah, yes, and very this intense. Has all happened. But right? he's not out of control. Yep. No, he's just enraged. And he starts by throwing his sword. You can just imagine this sword, Doug, that's like as long as a space marine is tall. And he impales Kairos with this sword when he throws it. Yes, like, and it specifically says, like, he doesn't even move. He's walking towards Cabanda and, like, side throws it like you'd throw a dart at the wall and it pins the greater demon. That's <laughs> oh, so great. Then he attacks Cabanda with his bare hands. Yep. Like, he could have taken this. He was taking this guy before, but now his bare hands. He uses the bloodthirster's whip that he used to break his leg, you know, Sanguinius's legs. He basically garrets him with it. And... He finishes this frenetic attack by tearing its wings off. It's just like, <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm it's the only crazy. model with the fly special rule in this game. <laughs> yes. And then he just takes Cabana, like tosses him over his shoulder into the pit, right? Mm -hmm. So much for that. Um, now, of course, all this is going on. That, that rage fire is still there. So yes. the... The Blood Angels have pretty much finished off the demons, and now they are getting ready to turn on each other because there's nothing else to kill, and they need something to kill. Yes. So Kairos, you know, as you said, pinned like a you know a bug um, to the wall. Is he, he says to Sanguinius in his you know Solaneshi way, "Look, I can save your sons, but you have to jump into." that pit you got to go there yeah right? so maros is there and this is why he's such a wonderful character he's like he didn't say anything he just knows what needs to be done right mm -hmm. he has such understanding beyond himself and he sacrifices himself instead and 
to to Sanguinius's rage. Like he did not like that. He was no, not at all. Yeah. Um, and Sanguinius basically goes over and whoop, just takes Kairos's head off. And because earlier in the book he had made a promise when Kairos first appeared, so I'm going to kill you. Mm-hmm. And so he just killed him. But now Maros has transformed into this corrupted revenant known from here on as the Red Angel. Yes. And it's the same revenant that the librarians and, you know, Kano and Sanguinius saw coming. And the sad part for us all is that he basically, this this Red Angel is talking because it's, you know, Maros has been corrupted now and possessed. He says, look, just enough of Maros is in here, he knows what he's become. Yep. And he just said that just out of pure spite. And then, whoop, he kind of disappears into the pit. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the Blood Angels level the cathedral, they collect their dead. Yes. And then this is when the storm kind of dissipates, for the most part, the intensity of it, yeah. Yeah. And this is also in the story where they learn... Uh, that um, eight legions mm-hmm. have sided with Horus. Three have been dis- three of the loyalist legions have been destroyed. The entire galaxy is in civil war now, and they set course for Terra. Right. Well, they realize that after em- re-emerging into real space, mm-hmm. they are very far from Terra. <laughs> yes, they're not even in the the, the Terra system. And it seems like they may not have been following a psychic beacon that is the Astronomicon. It might have been another beacon. Oh, but the Astronomicon's the brightest beacon, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so, a tale for another time. Uh, and some ships start handling them. It turns out they're ultramarines. Mm-hmm. Robute Gilliman is there. He greets his brother. And basically says, now that you're here, we can get started. Yep. And that's essentially... So they got um, coughed up in like Ultramar system, right? Yeah, which yeah. was pretty cool. Now, the kind of the epilogue to the story is we, we go to the Ventral Spirit, which is Horus's flagship, obviously. And Erebus proudly presents the Red Angel to Horus. And he's, he's like, well, that's really cool. You know? Yep. But... Erebus, being the arrogant jerk that he is, he says, you know, you really screwed things up, Horus. And you're going, oh, this isn't going to end well for him. Yeah, but everybody else in the room is like, what are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. He says, Horus, you screwed up. I I worked so closely with Chaos to, to make this all work and to turn the angels, to turn Sanguinius. And it's all messed up. And so Horace is just like, really, you arrogant bastard. He's like, okay, <laughs> look. And he grabs the Athame, you know, Athame, that, that horrible knife dagger thing. He basically just cuts part of his face off. Yep. And, you know, he goes, you know what? I need to remind you about something that neither your chaos gods or, uh, you are the masters of the rebellion. Only me. Mm-hmm. I'm the master of this rebellion. And my commentary on this is, you know, this 
this Horus is so different than the Horus in other places in the heresy, and especially during the siege, because he's absolutely unwilling to admit, or he's completely unaware that he has always been and still is just a playing piece for the Pantheon. Yes. You know, and yep. he he will remain this way in, to me, kind of a state of delusion for the rest of the heresy. Oh, um, I would totally agree with that, yeah. Um, <laughs> that's our story. Yeah, okay. So, everybody, that is Fear to Tread by James Swallow. Um, final thoughts for me, uh, as I think about this. I've already mentioned that it's a great introduction to... Blood Angels lore and, and demons, at least how space marines encounter them. Uh, one of the things I like is that they really kind of slow rolled what the trap was. So, like, the trap was to get them to Cygnus Prime and then throw a ton of demons at them, trigger the, the Red Thirst, and then just let them fight each other. And then once the Legion broke and fell into disunion, then you could own the Blood Angels, right? Like, that was cool. And the debate really was focused on does Sanguinius have to be dead for that to happen? And it was very, I don't know. At the end, I was a little bit perplexed. Um, Mm. Because we didn't really get a good answer to that. Like, are they strong enough on their own? Because it sounds like all they needed was a pariah, (laughs) which Mm -hmm. exists. But um, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the story when I started it. I couldn't stop. Um, do you know if the Red Angel appears more later on? Because I oh, yes, okay, yes, okay, yes. And the other thing that is interesting, your commentary is so spot on. Without you, I think even knowing it was, <laughs> you know, you asked this really significant question: Can the Blood Angels exist without Sanguinius? Mm-hmm. Right, and the question obviously is answered. Yeah, um, in forty k. Um, and one of the reasons I picked out Ralderon as one of our main characters here is mm-hmm. Ralderon ends up being the first chapter master of the post-Heresy Blood Angels. Mm. Okay. And it's, it's just really, really cool that this character were introduced in this book. You know, 40 books later, um, he's still um, significant to the blood angel story. And of course, Cabanda is a demon. He's going to come back sometime. So there's that that legacy of his interaction with the uh, blood angels and just, yeah, so cool as a foundational story, I think Doug Mm -hmm. to, to this wonderful Legion and to this great Primark. Yeah. I will uh, say I never had an interest in them before. Um, I still mm. don't want to paint an army of them because red's just not my jam. But uh, I will say this made me like the Blood Angels far more than I expected to. Kind of the same thing with the uh, the White Scars book as well. Yep. I one of the reasons I think I enjoy them a lot is in 40k they've just become this very uh, they really their spirit is very much the Ralderon thing where they're very adaptive and they're very flexible. Mm-hmm. Um, because when the Primaris Marines, you know, when the new 40K story come out, a lot of legions were very hesitant to accept Primaris. But the Blood Angels, for reasons, they were all on board. They, yeah. they were just like, hey, this is going to work. This is going to make us stronger yep. as a legion. This is going to make the Imperium stronger. And they were like, yeah, let's get it done. Absolutely. Um, so, 
um, yeah, great stuff. Okay. Well, here at the end, I want to announce our next book that we'll be reading for the next two, three weeks or so or whatever. Uh, and that is going to be The Buried Dagger, mm. The Doom of the Death Guard. Uh, it's Horace Heresy Book 54, also by James Swallow. Yeah. And uh, so we'll get we'll get our fill of him. But this is going to be chronicling. We already picked up on the Death Guard at Istvan. We didn't talk about him too much because there was a lot of other legions there. But yes. this is this is their true comeuppance to when they turn into the Death Guard that we know, right? The yes. gross boys. Yeah. So um, I'm very excited to get into that one. Uh, are you going to do the audiobook or, or Dead Tree? I'm tempted to do Dead Tree. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but probably audiobook. I think yeah. I'll do audiobook. Yeah. I'll do audiobook as well. Uh, but anything uh, here at the end you want to tack in there? No, I can't can't think of anything else other than we're going to have uh, before we actually talk about the novel, we're going to have a teaser story that is really important to understanding what happened to the um, to the Death Guard Sweet. and kind of the origin story of the the 40K Death Guard. Terrific. Awesome. Well, I'll catch you then. Thank you, friends and Imperial citizens. Till next time, may the Emperor protect.